Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, December 22nd, we are studying Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The Lord makes his light to shine on those who have dwelt in deep darkness, and he shines that light by sending a child, his son, the king, who reigns on the throne of David forever. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Tim Cook. Pastor Cook serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota. Pastor Cook, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Glad to be back. Happy Advent. Happy Advent for just a couple more days here. So, Pastor Cook, we're looking at Old Testament readings for Advent and for Christmas during this series here on Sharp Iron. This text from Isaiah 9 is the Old Testament reading for the Christmas midnight service. And as it happens, we actually just studied part of Isaiah 7 yesterday, which is the Old Testament reading for another service on Christmas Eve. So that works out pretty nicely, because as, as you sent me in your notes ahead of time, we need to connect these two texts. So as we prepare to look at Isaiah 9, 2 to 7 today, help us get from where we were yesterday, that context from Isaiah 7 into chapter 9 today. Sure. Uh, so in I, Isaiah 6, famously, uh, Isaiah receives his vision from God in the temple, holy, 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 here am I, send me, and then Isaiah gets a commission from the Lord. Uh, after this commission, kind of the the first act of the play, I, that's not the greatest analogy, but the first thing that happens after this uh, vision and commissioning is we are uh, plopped down in the reign of Ahaz, um, son of Jotham, in the um, southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. And he, along with the entire nation of Judah, are terrified. They are scared because they have discovered that the kingdoms to the north, the northern kingdom, uh, which is referenced as Ephraim here, though we would know it as the, king, um, the kingdom of Israel, uh, is in alignment and uh, has signed a treaty or some sort of political agreement with uh, Syria. And so it's called the Syro-Ephraim Pact or Treaty, something like that. And they are um, they're teaming up to take down Judah, and that is why Judah is afraid. To, as you heard yesterday on the show, to help calm their troubled hearts, um, Isaiah the prophet shows up to the king and he says, ask for a sign. He has box at the invitation under the pretense of false piety. And then Isaiah says, fine, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Um, and then the, from there, uh, <laughs> Isaiah says, though you are terrified of Ephraim and Syria, 65 years from now, neither one of these countries will even exist. 
because you really need to be afraid of the guys north of them, the Assyrians. And so he gives a warning about the Assyrian um, kingdom and their coming destruction. And after he scares them uh, by telling them about Assyria, the big bad country in the north, he then um, ratchets up his rhetoric and he says, actually, the one you need to be afraid of is the Lord your God. Um, but if you don't look to the Lord your God, this is all chapter 8, if you don't look to the Lord your God and look instead to the things of the earth, and then he references kind of the worst of the earth, necromancers and sorcerers and witches and whatnot, mediums, he says you will dwell and you will only see darkness. And that's kind of where we pick up the people sitting in darkness. And they're sitting in darkness because they have looked to uh, darkness to help them, and that's not going to go well for them. So, so that's the connection. It's a, there's, it's, there's so much there, but that's the connection. So we need to, in order to understand Isaiah 9, we need to keep that promise of Emmanuel in our minds. As we hear today, what I think is a pretty familiar text— from Handel's Messiah, if nothing else, the child that is born, the son is given. We're going to want to connect that all the way back to Isaiah 7 and the promise of Emmanuel given there. Should we, and, and in that vein, Pastor Cook, should we should we still think of this text as being spoken to King Ahaz by Isaiah in that same setting, or is it more general than that? Uh, it's more general. <clears throat> it's more general because it, it does shift uh, a little bit at the beginning of 8, where it says, Then the Lord said to me, um, so I, this is just in my imagination. I certainly don't build any dogma around it, I guess. But uh, um, he has this conversation with Ahaz, and then after he's done with that, then I get the impression that he goes back home. Uh, as soon as he gets home, the Lord speaks to him again, and he says, Hey, uh, here's more information uh, concerning Assyria, uh, and, and that just, which I assume he's sharing, because I assume Isaiah is a faithful prophet in this regard. So still addressed to Ahaz, most certainly still addressed to Judah, but not in the same scene, like we've cut away uh, at least once since then. All right, very good. So we've, we, And we want to keep in our minds that theme of darkness, Darkness, as you said, that is coming from the people of Judah and King Ahaz particularly, looking to the things of the earth, the necromancers, the mediums, the sorcerers, all those dark ways of attempting to gaze into the future. That's going to leave the people dwelling in darkness, and into that darkness, God will shine his light. And that is the promise that we hear today in Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7. The prophet writes, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That is Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7, the Old Testament text for the Christmas midnight service. So, Pastor Cook, right away we hear the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And and if I can just briefly for one more note of context, verse 1 talks particularly that there is gloom, there is darkness in the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, Galilee of the the nations up there in the northern part of Israel. It what why particularly that area and then Take us into this theme of darkness and light that Isaiah begins really drawing out for us in verse 2. Sure. The Zebulun and Naphtali, correct. So for the listener, if you remember, you have uh, the Dead Sea is in, in the south and directly west of the north shore of the Dead Sea is Jerusalem which constitutes pretty well the what's the capital of Judah, but not too far north of there. We're now into the kingdom of Israel. Um, Isaiah is a prophet in the kingdom of Judah. He's a prophet of the southern kingdom. Um, so the first thing you should notice is he's expressing concern to a different, the kingdom of Israel, which is teaming up with Syria here. Uh, to some degree, uh, to, to defeat them. And he says, these are still the people of God. Um, so he's talking about Zebulun and Naphtali. So you take the Jordan River, which flows into the north of the uh, Dead Sea, you run it all the way up into the Sea of Galilee, uh, Capernaum, you know, Jesus' ministry is up there. And so Zebulun and Naphtali are the territories that are between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Tyre and Sidon and the Phoenicians are over in that area, too. <clears throat> it's uh, quite a bit of a, like most borders, um, it, it's a northern border. It's where there's a lot of uh, racial melting going on, um, if you a melting pot, kind of. And when the kingdom of Assyria attacks, uh, Zebulun and Naphtali are going to be the first to go, um, because just as I'm in South Dakota, if uh, if Canada was going to attack South Dakota, they got to get through North Dakota first. Um, and um, so Assyria, they're coming, and they're going to take down Zebulun and Naphtali first. It's just basic geography. But Isaiah here is speaking a word uh, of concern on their behalf, uh, because Though the kingdom is split, and though the northern kingdom does not worship in Jerusalem, but rather at the golden calves of Bethel and Dan, and Dan is way up there in the Zebulun area, um, they are still his people. And so, yeah, that's that's kind of the that's the context there. And another thing that needs to be mentioned, because I haven't said the name yet, the the guy in charge of the Assyrian kingdom is a man named Tiglath-Pileser III. Um, 
I believe uh, he also goes by the name Pool, I think, P-U-L, or I think that's it. Uh, he's got a couple of different names. But Tiglath Pileser third. so he's he's a big big man on campus, um, and that'll come back here um, by the by the end of our text. We're going to have to reference him a couple of times. With that context from Zebulun and Naphtali being in the north and the Assyrian invasion particularly affecting them, and we think about this darkness, which as you, you said in Isaiah chapter 8, the darkness comes with the necromancers, the mediums, seeking the will of God apart from the Lord himself, misusing the name of the Lord, those kinds of things. Is is there a dual darkness going on here? The darkness that comes from within Israel in their failure to keep the Lord's commandments, but also this darkness that comes from without this invasion of the Assyrians? I believe so, yeah. I would, in the same way that we will talk about sin as being both uh, a power that holds us captive and enslaved, and yet is also a personal responsibility, something that we carry out. So our distinctions between original and actual sin um, in uh, our dogmatic texts, uh, similar concept I think you can take with the darkness here, which is, it's just, it's got them. It's, they're stuck there in the darkness, and then to make matters worse, they do more darkness. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's, uh, and, and then additionally, the, the Assyrians, they, they're the reason the kingdom of Assyria is the reason why Isaiah is telling King Ahaz, you don't need to worry about the Syria Ephraimite alliance. Remember 65 years from now, neither of them are going to be a country. So the thing that has Judah so scared, Isaiah says, you don't need to worry about them. Well, why not? Because Assyria is their problem. Because they're, they're even north yet of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so you might be inclined to think, uh, hip, hip, hooray, go Assyria. And I'm sure they felt that way until they realized, oh, they're not just going to stop there. They're going to keep coming. So... Um, where are you looking for your for your hope? And this is a classic, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They're thinking, okay, the enemy of Syria, Ephraim, is Assyria. They must be my friend because they're the enemy of my enemy. No, that is not true. And that's all chapter 8, which is where are you looking for your hope? Uh, who are you afraid of? Um, and it's just, it's clear you are looking to the earth. That's the phrase, looking to the earth of which then we have our necromancers and just kind of the dregs of uh, bad spirituality. And that was the move that Ahaz was making, was to put his trust in Assyria rather than in the Lord. So darkness is everywhere. The people of Israel, the people of Judah, are placing their trust in that darkness, but into that darkness, the light will shine. So take us into that image that we get in verse 2, Pastor Cook. Yep, uh, light shines into the darkness. The chief thing that I would highlight, uh, both as a preacher, pastor, and I guess radio host, is that the light comes from outside. It's not manufactured or generated by the people. Uh, it's, uh, it's salvation from outside of us, which is how salvation always works. Um, it it comes from outside, and so that's that's the light. It's shining it into 
into this area. So, hmm. right. The light of the promised uh, Messiah, the fulfillment of the promises of the Lord God, whom they should fear but don't. And, and again, this a text like this then makes perfect sense at a time like Christmas midnight, in the darkest of the night, here is the light that shines. And, and you know, not to, well, we know where this is going, I think. This is this is talking about Jesus ultimately. And, I mean, we see that in particular in verses 6 and 7, that he is the light that shines in the darkness. And we've we've seen this theme throughout the season of Advent, the, the light grows. We picture that in many of our churches by using the Advent wreath, that every Sunday we light another we light another candle. The light is growing. I'm, I'm reminded of oh, the text that, at least in the three-year lectionary, that we heard recently from John chapter 1, where John tells us, John the Apostle tells us, that John the Baptist came as, not as the light himself, but as one who pointed others to the light, that the light had to come from outside, as you said. We who, we who dwell in darkness, there's no light within us. The light has to shine outside of us. And I'm even reminded, going all the way back to the very beginning, when God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. From outside, here comes the word of the Lord, and suddenly, by his command, light shines on in the middle of darkness. Right. Yeah, the the light theme is a very rich theme throughout throughout all of all of scripture. Um yeah, beginning from verse three to you know, there <laughs> the there will be no light nor lamp nor sun for the lamb is in the midst of them, the new Jerusalem pictured at the end of Revelation. So yeah, it's, it's there all along. So with with that, Pastor Cook, and, and trying to tie this together with some of the things we've been talking about, when Isaiah it preaches here that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, particularly for those northern lands in the northern kingdom, well, what is—I mean, I, I said he's talking about Jesus. I mean, or does he have anything else in mind in terms of, like, you know, I mean, is he talking about— oh? don't worry about Assyria or the Assyrian conquest isn't going to last forever. Or is he, is he going straight to Jesus? What, how, how do, how are the people of, of Israel and Isaiah's day hearing this? Um, I'm not sure how they're hearing it there. It's, it's a well-plowed field. If it's like a two tiered uh, fulfillment system, a lot of people point to Hezekiah and his birth as being uh kind of the child who is to be born of a maiden, depending on how you take that. Um, So I'm inclined to say, because of what we're going to read in verse 6, yep, he's jumping all the way to Jesus. He is is referring to this is what it looks like when you are, you know, when when the Messiah is here, when the Lord is fulfilling his promises uh, of old, which gets into some really weird tense, uh, not tense as in contentious, but tense as in verbal tense. Mm. I mean, you're talking about the future as though you're there, and so you're talking about events that are in the future as though they've already occurred. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. I mean, uh, it's, 
it's a headache. But no, he is referring to a future reality that is uh, occurring on account of the Son of God. Mm-hmm. And of course, I mean, we're hearing this text on Christmas midnight, but Matthew also connects this text to the beginning of Jesus' preaching ministry in this very region, in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, and up there in up there in Galilee yep. in the northern stretches. Exactly. Yep. Galilee of the Gentiles. Right. So we would be on, on very solid ground, again, to say that this is referring to Jesus here. He is the light who shines in darkness. Isaiah continues then, because of this light, he says, you, the Lord, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So, Pastor Cook, the people who were dwelling in darkness, now they've seen a great light. Verse 3 tells us, well, well, what happens when they see this great light? Yeah, joy increases for a number of reasons. There's a reversal of fortune uh, here. So, again, the context of Zebulun and Naphtali, they're going to be the first dominoes to fall in the conquest of Assyria, and that is... Uh, you know, an opposite experience than um, increasing nations' joy as at harvest. Um, we're going to get an allusion here to Midian pretty sh- pretty soon, where you know they're they're doing everything they can to hide the harvest. There's no joy at all. They're you know pressing grapes in obscure locations just to try to keep it away from the from the Midianites. Um, and so Jesus Christ, he's going to increase joy, and it's going to be a, a joy accompanied, again, as we're going to see twice, a joy accompanied by peace, not twice. We're going to see this pretty much every verse from here to the end. So you can be joyful in the harvest if you're not worried about a giant army sweeping through and taking all of your stuff. Um, so that's... Uh, well, there's, there's two... It's just so much joy. It's just, you know, what's the happiest thing you can think of? Dividing spoil, hmm. right? That means we're, we're, we've proved victors, the threat is gone, and now we have lots of stuff to spread around and share with others. Hmm. So that's, that's the joy that Jesus brings. Right. So there's, there's the two images that are used to describe this joy. One is that joy at the harvest. And, and as you said, well, when we get to the Midian part, we can, we can talk about that as well. That, but then also the joy of dividing the spoils. So the joy of the harvest, bringing in what you have sown, reaping the, the work at the very end. The, just the, well, you, you live in, in South Dakota uh, in an agricultural area, correct? And so correct. at the harvest season, I mean, this is, you know, think of all of the threats that would be there to bringing in that harvest. And once you've brought that in successfully, there is, there's this this overwhelming joy. And so, I mean, there's there's one image for joy. And then the other is a, a war image that, that the war is over, you've won, and now you get to enjoy the the spoil and divide it. And there's, there's more than enough. I mean, the, the theme of joy here, just it overflows. And I think you're right. It's very much connected to that theme of, of peace that we're going to see. Yep. It's, um, the, both war and harvest can go sideways in a hurry. Yes. Um, which is, you know, the Yogi, is it Yogi Berra's saying, it, you know, it ain't over till it's over. <laughs> um, it's, it's just that 
there it is. I mean, you can get close and all of a sudden the weather turns or it gets windy or machinery breaks or blight or some, it just, it, yeah, it can. And likewise war. I mean, you might think you're winning and then the, the battle, uh, the tide turns in a different direction. All of a sudden, Oh, I guess we're the losers. So it's this finality. Um, this, it's, it's not a, uh, reserved joy it's hmm. it's it's the full-blown it's the, well i'll think of it um say it like this there is a joy that accompanies a couple when they're uh when they discover they're expecting yes um as one who has uh suffered a miscarriage that joy uh with the next time you find out you're expecting is a reserved joy it just is. You're holding your breath. You're not quite sure. When can I like tell people uh, so I don't have to walk this back? Um, and it's just, it's different. And so it's always, you know, when you can express the joy because it can't be taken from you anymore. Uh, that's what we got here. I mean, it's, it's the most emphatic way to express the joy that the Christ child, the Messiah is going to bring. But And, and that's, that's the the point is that it, it comes from the the you here. You have multiplied the nation. They rejoice before you. And I don't know if you you've mentioned this yet, but I know I know you wanted to to bring this out that the reason there is joy is not necessarily because oh it was dark and now it's light, but because you because God has come. Right. Yeah. So the joy is following the coming of the Lord. It's not. Um, yeah. The the joy the joy is in the Lord. It's not in the results of what's happened. Um, so the result well it it follows. It's just everything in its right order. But the joy the joy is in Christ. So Paul picks up on the steam. Uh, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again. Uh, rejoice. And um, likewise uh, Isaiah in oh I think we just had this in the three year lectionary two sixty one. Says a similar thing. I'm just looking up here. Levi also says, "Rejoice!" Yeah, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Like that's an important uh, prepositional phrase there. Mm. The joy is there. Wherever the Lord is present with His salvation, there is joy, and and that's. I mean, we've seen that throughout the Advent season, and that joy then comes to this climax on Christmas, which is the text we're looking at today in Isaiah chapter nine. We're going to take a short break here on Sharper Iron. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, December 22nd. We're studying Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. We've got Pastor Tim Cook with us. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota. 
Pastor Kirk, prior to the break, we were looking at verses 2 and 3. The Lord shines into this darkness with his great light. His presence there brings joy for the people in the midst of the darkness of their idolatry, in the midst of the darkness that's coming upon them because of the attacks of their enemies. The Lord's light shines and brings this completely unreserved joy. And the prophet continues in verse 4. He speaks of the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on the day of Midian. So there's two things to talk about there. This yoke, staff, rod on the one hand, and then what is the day of Midian? So let's start with the yoke, the staff, the rod. Uh, what's the image there? What's the prophet saying? Yeah, what uh, when the Assyrians, t- we don't even need to go that far. Go back to Solomon. The thing that actually divided the kingdom was after Solomon's death, Rehoboam needs to make a decision about what to do with what was considered a... The complaint of the Israelites is Solomon has placed a heavy yoke upon us. And Rehoboam, and this is uh, almost a pun, he has um, his wise old counselors, he listens to, or he listens to their counsel, and he listens to the counsel of his young, stupid friends, and um, he foolishly rejects the wise counsel of the older men, and uh, and he accepts the wisdom of his young, unintelligent friends who say, increase the burden, push them harder, uh, expect more, extract more. And uh, and so he received bad count. Now the pun here is uh, this child who's going to be born is going to be called a wonderful counselor um, coming up. But um, so Solomon had this heavy yoke, this burden upon the people. Likewise, the Assyrians when they came in, uh, one commentary I was looking at um, in reference to uh, ancient Near Eastern texts as they per- relate to the Old Testament. The you know, Tiglath Pleaser III and his ilk would brag about the heavy burden that they would place upon the people they captured. And um, and here's here's kind of uh, where I'll go with that. Uh, yes, anything that uh, isn't Jesus Christ mm-hmm. is a heavy yoke to bear, uh, because it is it is a yoke without grace. There's no grace there. So Jesus comes along and famously says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, so so Jesus is going to latch on to this uh, prophecy concerning himself and, and use that uh, in the conversation in Matthew 11. Um, so what is it that... Um, and, and again, think of the... Or, Maybe the first time, maybe not again. Think of the structure of a king and a lord. Uh, king Solomon, when the Israelites asked for a king, Samuel the prophet uh, and the judge warns them, you are going to get a king, but be aware he's going to take your daughters, he's going to take your sons, he's going to take your vineyards, he's going to take your choicest fields and cattle, etc. Because in that kingdom... Uh, your job is to serve the king. That's what you do. Your entire job is to bear the burden so the king doesn't have to. Jesus flips this on his head uh, in Matthew 20, 
he says, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to make it, give his life as a ransom for many. And so we're going to get that too. Um, it, this is the, Christ is here to serve us, uh, which means the yoke is lighter, and that's that's a good thing. So he's gonna he's gonna break. The Christ is going to break the oppressive, graceless yoke, which is any yoke you have that isn't Jesus. And the prophet says that that this is going to be broken as on the day of Midian. We've referenced this briefly, but now take us into this further. What is the day of Midian, and how does it relate to the breaking of the yoke that's promised here? Okay, the the Midianites in Judges chapter 6 and 7 are oppressing the Israelites, and it is uh, Gideon that the Lord raises up to be the deliverer. Uh, Gideon, this uh, youngest child of a large family who's, um, you know, pressing grapes on the threshing floor or whatever. Uh, I, that's probably not right. He's, he's hiding, um, etc. And so the story of, of Gideon is that the Lord chooses him, and then he assembles this giant army, which then gets whittled down to 300 people. He just God just keeps shaving it off less, 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 and less, so that there can be no doubt in anyone's mind that this victory came from the hand of the Lord. And uh, with these 300 people, uh, you know, the lamps inside the jars and the shattering and the trumpet blowing and uh, the Midianites more or less uh, kill themselves and uh, out of fear and uh the israelites are proved are proved the victor now there's more going on here with the midian thing there's at least two other things happening one of them is that when gideon was told that he was chosen by the lord to do this thing he asked for a sign he famously places this fleece out uh, on two separate occasions. On one occasion, he wants the ground to be wet and the fleece to remain dry. And then the next day, uh, he, and I don't know if I'm getting this in the right order, but the next day he then asks that the ground remain dry and the fleece be wet. And so Gideon boldly asks God, he tests the Lord, and he says, I want a sign. I want a sign of this deliverance. I want a sign of this victory. I want a sign of this promise. Now, Remember, we need to connect chapter 9 of Isaiah to chapter 7. Well, in chapter 7, Ahaz, as the audience heard yesterday, was asked for a sign. As high as heaven or as deep as Sheol, pick anything you want. And under false piety, he's like, oh, nah, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. And so Gideon is the anti-Ahaz. He is uh, just of a different character. And uh, so you have that going on. Um, He boldly asks for a sign, trusting in the Lord, whereas Ahaz, at the invitation from the Lord for a sign, won't even do that. Uh, So shame on Ahaz. So the Lord's going to give us his own sign, which is his son, Emmanuel, God with us. And then the other thing to keep in mind uh, in all of this is the days of Midian, that's before the kings. This is 
I mean, we're not even in a monarchy uh, yet. Um, and so remember the king, when they asked for a king, the Lord famously tells Samuel, uh, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their, their king. So this is going to predate, this is going to predate the, this victory will, will, you know, in some way predate the, the monarchy, uh, and the kingdom, which, um, is impressive, especially since in a three verses, we're going to be told that this guy's going to sit on the throne of David. So is it predating the, the monarchy or is it part of the monarchy? Yes. The eternal son of God who predates the monarchy is going to sit on the throne of King David, who was the monarchy. So it's, mm. there's that little prepositional phrase as on the day of Midian, uh, Wow, there's there is a lot in there. So just to to summarize that, you've got this sort of you know, you're kind of winking at at Ahaz in the background say, "Hey, look, Ahaz, you wouldn't ask for a sign when Gideon did." You've got the matter of the Lord winning a victory under completely improbable means. He's going to do it in a way such that he alone receives all credit and glory. And you've got that note that who's the king here? Well, it is the Lord. It, it's He is the king, going all the way back to the judges. It's fantastic there. So this king who is coming, and we'll talk more about that, particularly in verses 6 and 7, this theme of peace that you were mentioning earlier really starts to come to the front, beginning in verse 5, where boots of warriors and garments rolled in blood are burned as fuel. What's the I mean, the image is, is pretty pretty rough. What's the point of the image of the, these weapons? Well, not the weapons, but the clothing of war being burned up. Yeah, we're done with the war stuff. Um, that's by almost, almost always, in Scripture, fire is a means of judgment, or it's a way to destroy or otherwise get rid of things you want no association with anymore. And uh, so here you go. We're, we're done with the warfare stuff. The boots and the garments and everything else uh, is going to be destroyed um, in kind of a, a lesser to greater connection. If the boots and the garments of war are going to be destroyed, we can safely assume that the warriors are also gone. Hmm. And we can likewise assume that the, that the weapons themselves have been uh, put away, destroyed, or no longer used or if we would like to use an image from Isaiah earlier in Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 5, 2, 1, uh, I should know. The Beat your uh, you know, spears into pruning hooks and your swords into plowshares. That, yeah, that, that's, that. chapter, that's chapter 2. It's, it is one of, the, one of the Advent readings, actually. So we, we looked at that previously. Yeah, the, that's, a, that's a theme that we see in, in Isaiah, this, this ending of the war, because, because the Prince of Peace has come. So can I take us into verse six then, Pastor Cook? Yeah. All right. Now this is this is where I think the text becomes quite familiar to many of us because of Handel's Messiah and just hearing it around this time of year, almost every year. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. We'll, we'll save the names. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. So the child is born the son is given. Again, we're, we're going to connect this to the Emmanuel promise back in chapter 7. The, the Lord has promised that this is going to happen like on the day of Midian, that 
that the one who reigns with this peace and brings an end to all these warriors and their tools of war, well, it's going to be a just a child. Take us into that first part of verse 6. Uh, right, so you're correct. We're going to connect that back to, to 7. This child, the sign that's been promised, is now here. Um, we have uh, in between here, <laughs> so in between chapter 7 and chapter 9, unsurprisingly, is Isaiah chapter 8, where Isaiah names his own children uh, as a way to uh, proclaim the truth and word of God. He famously calls his one son, I have to read it every time because I can't pronounce it, Mahar Shalahashbaz, Shalal, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, something like that. Uh, a very lengthy name. So now we have we have this other we have this child who is born for born to us for unto us uh, to all of us. This child is born, and this is the one through whom this joy is going to occur. So the very first word of chapter six is the word for, uh, as in a result clause. If you'll permit uh, grammatical phraseology here. This is the third one of these result clauses we've we've seen, um, and that might not even be the right phrase, but we've talked about the joy that increased in verse 3, right? And then it's for the yoke of his burden, so the oppression is gone, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and is burned as fuel for the fire, so the oppression is gone, the warfare uh, tools are being destroyed. And now we have this next one, which is answering the question, how? How is God going to carry out or accomplish these joyful promises? And the answer is a son. He's going to do it for a son, through a son um, that's born to all of us. And uh, the government, the reign, the, that's probably the best way to say it, the reign, as in the kingdom of God, the reign will be upon his shoulder. So... He's, he's going to carry it out. So who, I mean, who who is this child? That's been, I mean, we've got a child who's being born, a son that's being given. Just in those words, what are we learning about this person that Isaiah is promising? Well, we know uh, it's, uh, it's a person. It's a human being. It's, it's one of us. So we need to establish that because we're going to quickly be talking about Jesus Christ, who is both God and man. But oh. he is he is man. He comes to us in the way that all children come to us. He will be born, um, and uh, he is uh, a son, as uh, we're going to discover. And again, the son of God. Uh, so be careful about playing fast and loose with scriptural revelation concerning sex and gender as it pertains to uh our Father in heaven and his Son, Jesus Christ. Mm. Um, and uh, there we go. We're going to learn that he is uh, the stuff of kingdoms because he's got governmental responsibilities. And um, so there we go. Also, uh, back to the, the peace theme, You uh, nobody quakes. Remember, Isaiah, Ahaz, excuse me, and all of Judah is quaking because of the kings of Syria and Ephraim. Uh, you, you don't quake at the birth of a child. Mm-hmm. Just like, oh, it's a child. I could take candy from that baby all day, every day of the week. So um, it's, a, it's, a gentle, it's a gentle image. 
which is in accord with the rest of the passage, which is highlighting the cessation of warfare and the endurance of peace. So this child who is to be born, he is a human being, and yet we also can see from the names that he bears, he is God at the same time. So we've got four names that this son who is born will bear. The first, we'll just take them one at a time. The first is Wonderful Counselor. Okay, uh, the word, yes. Uh, I've, first, I want to point out the pun. <clears throat> um, the word wonderful is Pella, in, uh, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but uh, Pella in Hebrew, and it, it's a pun off the name Tiglath Peleser the uh, Third. So Tiglath Peleser, this king of Assyria who's going to destroy everything, um, he's going to conquer the northern kingdom. And if not for the angel of the Lord, he would have also sacked Jerusalem. Uh, but that's later in Isaiah. Uh, so you have, uh, yeah. Tiglath, he's the main man, big man on campus, and yet this child is more wonderful than him. Mm. Uh, so he's kind of playing off that, playing off that name, which is good. Also, as I've already alluded to, um, kings are usually the ones who receive counsel. They don't necessarily provide counsel themselves. Uh, Solomon does, but he is uh, a little bit of an exception to the rule, particularly because he received this this divine wisdom from the Lord at the Lord's invitation. And this is another example of how Ahaz just really dropped the ball, because Solomon was approached, and the Lord said, ask whatever I shall give you, and Solomon doesn't say, oh, no, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. He's like, I am weak and pathetic, and your people are large and numerous, and I need help learning how to govern them. And so uh, Solomon becomes the, well, his name is Shalom, Shalomo. Uh, He is the son of peace. He did not know warfare in his time. He, like Jesus Christ, is called the son of David. Uh, He, like the Christ, enters into his coronation on a donkey. There's there's so much, so many connections between Solomon and Jesus. It's it's pretty stunning. But um, so this child is going to be a wonderful counselor, and um, you have a little bit of an allusion to Solomon and also the Assyrian king Tiglath Pileser the third. We've got about eight minutes, Pastor Cook, just for just for reference. So it, okay. you know, just so you kind of know where to where you want to go. I'm going to open up the rest of the three for you and let you you go through a mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Okay, the mighty God. Just remember, we're connecting the birth of this child to the promise of Ahaz uh, to Ahaz in chapter seven, where we're told a child will be born and you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So we shouldn't balk at the fact that this child is called Mighty God, though born of human means, he is indeed divine. He's human and divine. So we're getting a a testimony of the two natures of Christ here, um, and that's uh, who this this child is. So I would connect the Mighty God to the promise of chapter 7, same context. Everlasting Father, who were the fathers? Uh, remember when Jesus is uh, sparring with the Pharisees, he says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our 
father. And when St. Paul is talking in Romans 9, they have the patriarchs of prophets. Um, so Israel has its fathers. I'm the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of your Isaac and Jacob. The God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses will tell the Israelites uh, who themselves are oppressed and in a land of deep darkness, uh, through whom light will shine and lead them in a pillar to the promised land. Um, this is uh, this is an everlasting father. This is not going to be a father of ages past. This is going to be an ongoing uh, a father, a continual uh, presence and leader, and frankly, identity of the people. So the people are identifying themselves as the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, now they're going to identify themselves as uh, children of God um, and co-heirs with with Christ. So we've got that going on. And then you have uh, the Prince of Peace. Just this is uh, kind of the cherry on the top. We have been talking about peace ever since verse 3. Um, so Jesus is that he's that peace. He brings wars to an end. And um, grace, mercy, and peace be to you, that, that kind of verbiage. So we see it at Christmas, uh, peace on earth uh, upon those Miss favor rests. Um, so that's our that's our child. Those are his titles that are given to him, and um, because this is who he is, it confesses everything that he is for us. Isaiah concludes this text then speaking of his reign that the increase of the government and of that peace, it's not going to end. He's going to reign on the throne of David forever. He will establish it, uphold it. I mean, we were talking about that unreserved joy. You're seeing why that happens here because of the security that is found under this king. And it will be the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Uh, we've got about five minutes here to, to look at this verse and wrap things up. Pastor Cook. Okay. Uh, the peace there will... Uh there will be no end. So whenever we have a prophecy of the Old Testament, there is a question of how is this heard by the original hearers? Um, and then how is this heard by us? And are there stages along the way? Um, this verse 7, the peace that will have no end, makes it very clear that Isaiah has in mind the end the end of the world, the day of the Lord would probably be the verbiage of the Old Testament. Uh, this, this piece will have, have no end. So Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this text because his reign has come, his kingdom uh, carries on, and the kingdom of God, only it, it only increases. It doesn't decrease. You don't get kicked out of the kingdom when you die but rather you are preserved within the kingdom uh, upon your death, which is why John the Apostle will say that, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on, um, for they are at rest from their labors. And so God's kingdom every day, uh, it's only, it's increasing. It just, it increases again and again and again all the time, uh, for which we give thanks, thanks to God. Um, will be no end. He will sit on the throne of David, so he is of the house and lineage of David. We're keeping in agreement with God's promises spoken in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, 
He's going to establish the kingdom. He'll uphold the kingdom, and he'll do this with justice, and he'll do it with righteousness. Uh, he'll do it now and forever. And so God's justice and righteousness, the prophet Jeremiah will pick up on this theme multiple times. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the same thing that happened in um, chapter chapter 8, though the righteousness verbiage is missing, um, the idea that uh, the Lord of hosts will be the will become the sanctuary uh, for the people who trust in him. So Isaiah definitely is going to pick up on the, the righteousness language multiple times in chapters 40 to 66. Um, I'm thinking of uh, he will clothe me with the garments of salvation and, and the robe of, of righteousness. So salvation and righteousness are synonymous here. And the Lord will give us those things through his son. And that's how he's going to do it. He's going to establish and uphold his rule, not by sending out armies. Remember, he's that's not his MO. He's not the army guy. He's not the warfare guy, um, as we've come to know it. The garments are being burned as fuel for the fire. The swords uh, we're putting away. Um, God's going to conduct us with his righteousness. His righteousness is found in his son, Jesus, who's poured out upon us in baptism, where we receive the robes of righteousness. I mean, there are so many connections here, it's hard to even know where to begin. Um, but this is how the Lord does it. And so we delight in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the righteousness and salvation that he gives us, knowing and trusting in these words, uh, that this is the light that has shone into the darkness of our lives. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. He is the light that has come into the world, the light no darkness can overcome. It's just, there's a lot. But it's all, it's all Christ. It's all Christ. It's all Christ. For you. And it's for you, right? For unto us a child is born, not unto Mary, uh, not unto Joseph, not unto Israel. It is unto us, to all of us. This righteousness, this light, this hope, this salvation, this peace, which knows no end, it's for us in this child. For us, for you, for sinners. Pastor Tim Cook is a pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota, helping us this morning with Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7. Pastor Cook, thanks for being our guest today. Glad to do it. Appreciate it. This child has been born for you. His name is Jesus, and he brings joy. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.